Thank you for downloading the Root Simple podcast. On this episode, Kelly and I review the Ridley Scott, Matt Damon movie, The Martian, based on the novel by Andy Weir. You know, Kelly, we're a bit in our own space capsule. We're definitely this podcast. in our own space capsule, and you just turned off the air supply, so we're on countdown. We have a heat wave, and we're in the only air-conditioned room in the house. But we had to turn off the the air conditioning unit so we could record this and it's going to start getting hot really fast uh, so we let's, might die let's get straight to the uh, trailer let's play the trailer okay to a good summary of the movie every human being has a basic instinct to help each other out if a hiker gets lost in the mountains people coordinate a search if an earthquake levels the city people all over the world send emergency supplies. This instinct is found in every culture, without exception. At around 4.30 a.m., our satellites detected a storm approaching the Ares-3 mission site on Mars. The storm had escalated to severe, and we had no choice but to abort the mission. But during the evacuation, astronaut Mark Watney was killed. I'm entering this log for the record. This is Mark Watney, and I'm still alive, obviously. I have no way to contact NASA or my crewmates. But even if I could, it would take four years for another manned mission to reach me. And I'm in a hab designed to last 31 days. So, in the face of overwhelming odds, I'm left with only one option. I'm gonna have to science the out of this. Okay, let's do the math. I gotta figure out how to grow four years worth of food here on a planet where nothing grows. But if I can't figure out a way to make contact with NASA, none of this matters anyway. Houston, be advised. We've got a video message. It's directed to the whole crew. Play it. Mein Gott. <laughs> Mark Watney's still alive. Woo! In your face, Neil Armstrong. We left him behind. Let's go get our boy. This is something NASA rejected. So we're talking mutiny. And if we mess up the supply rendezvous, you die. If we mess up the Earth gravity assist, we die. It's space. It doesn't cooperate. I guarantee you that at some point, everything's going to go south on you. And you're going to say, this is it. This is how I end. Is it possible that he's still alive? You might be asking yourself why we're discussing a science fiction movie on a 
podcast devoted to gardening and home economics and such, but I think there's some things that are relevant about this movie to the podcast, wouldn't you say, Kelly? (laughs) It's all about gardening and home economics. That's true, it is. (laughs) Uh, as a movie first, though, maybe we should just say a few words about it. Uh, what did you think of it as just as a – we actually use it as a way to way to escape the heat and get into an air-conditioned movie theater. Uh, I think it's very good for that purpose. It's not Tarkovsky's Solaris, however. No, it's, you know, but it is – I think it's a fine popcorn movie, uh, you know, which is faint praise. But, I, you know, I think it does it does its Hollywood movie job quite well. You know, it hits emotional buttons, takes you on a nice ride. It's not offensively stupid. There isn't like, not that I'm not really against sex and violence in films, but I like it to be smart sex and violence, if that makes any sense. And there's none of that. You know, there actually isn't any sex and no violence. So it's kind of refreshing to get through a movie without seeing like a woman's butt or something or maybe some things did explode. Although it is odd that mm. he, the character, the main character, played by, played by Matt Damon, had no human connection to the earth other than a brief mention of his parents. So he had no spouse or kids or anything, which I, you know, I think was on purpose. But I, it's an interesting choice because I've noticed lately and complained often that I think there's a page in the screenwriter's handbook which said says. The best and easiest and cheapest way to give your hero rock-solid motivation is to give him a family who needs him. So, you know, the zombies are coming and he's got 20 minutes to get across town to save his wife and his kids. Uh, You know, it's always about the hero being separated from his family and trying to get back, which is, I mean, of course, it's perennially, it's it's Ulysses. I mean, it's, you know, it is a strong motivation, but it's a really overused motivation. Sometimes I think, well, does anybody ever want to do something that doesn't involve wanting to get back to their family. Maybe they just want to live, you know, maybe they've got other plans. And I kind of like that, that he, you know, there wasn't a lot of kind of sentimentality around like this particular relationship that he's trying to continue. Instead, he just naturally wants to get back and we're all with him because we would too. Well, except that I, now I haven't read the novel. Again, the novel is by Andy Weir. But I think that the story was trying to place him as the first Martian. So perhaps the fact that he didn't have a family back on Earth was to make him more more of a uh, a Martian and to, to well, kind of detach him from the Earth, which is something we'll talk about yeah. later. But I, well, I don't know. I mean, also, if you know, if, if he was planning on, on being a colonist or whatever, then you wouldn't want to have a family at home. I mean, or if you're doing long, long space missions that last for years – that's hard on a family. So if you don't already have one, you might not be encouraged to go and get yourself one. It seemed like some of his crew had had family relationships, but that wasn't the heart of it. I think, in a way, they're like uh, they're like sailors, you know, who who have to stay light. Perhaps, but shall we move on to some of the more relevant topics right. to our podcast, which are the some of the technical things that are brought up <laughs> because. Um, in the movie, and this is there's spoiler alert. I think we've already spoiled everything, but uh, <laughs> just FYI, spoiler alert. But it it's obvious that he has a copy of John Javins's book, How to Grow More Vegetables, along with him, or at least the uh, the novelist Andy Weir must have must have come across that resource. I'm I'm guessing because when to to summarize the plot again, he gets stranded on the planet and he has to suddenly grow his own food because there's not enough 
um, REI dried food packages yeah, left he's got, for him. Yeah, he's got the lasagna and he's got the, yeah, no, he, um, yeah, he doesn't, he's got quite a bit of food because he also has his, his crewmates food. So it's not just his food. So he can last for a good while on that, but not nearly long enough for him to, um, for NASA to send back a rescue mission, which is like a, a timeline of years. So he realizes he needs to supplement his calories with homegrown food. And he used to work at a big box nursery. I'm <laughs> no, not actually. He, he's he, a botanist. He, he was a botanist. Yes, he's a botanist. So and he knows how to grow things. And he had, like I said, he has a copy of John Javins' book with him. Well, not really, but obviously that was a source. And he picks a calorie-dense food, which is potatoes. Well, he it doesn't actually – it's it's just dumb luck because he – He has potatoes with he him. He happens to he's, – he, he's going through his – he's taking stock of what he's got. And uh, it's all freeze-dried food except for there seems to be like a, a, a shrink-wrapped packet of potatoes – that's that's got Sharpie on it that says for Thanksgiving dinner. Uh, so it was a special treat that they brought up with them. And uh, and as, if you've ever grown potatoes, all you need to do is chop up the potatoes into pieces and plant them and they grow. The potatoes grow more potatoes. It's kind of miraculous. But that does lead us into some of the technical problems, I think, which I don't know if anyone – I looked to see if anyone has pointed out this stuff and – I came across a little something, but there there are some technical problems that I, that I have with what he does next. Now he gets all MacGyver on this action. When I got to say that that's fun, like you know, we can get all nitpicky, but it was fun watching him figure stuff out. Uh, that's all I have to say. Okay, so go go ahead. Right, criticize away. No, it's true. Uh, he he does figure things out again using the John Javins book, but. One of the problems that I've heard, actually, this was in an article in Modern Farmer magazine, which is a great resource, actually, pointed out that, uh, you know, he's got to grow these potatoes. So he digs up a bunch of Martian soil and plops it into the climate and temperature control space station that he's living in on the on the planet's surface. The problem, however, and, and the novelist didn't know this. The novelist is very fastidious about facts. And it, it's actually, the, the movie, too, seems very plausible. It's not nearly ways. as bad as a lot of movies, especially in terms of, I mean, he was actually growing pota- potatoes. They were actually potato plants. You know, like so often you see... That's true. Like they, they did have the right plant. They actually had the right plant. They, they just like, they just go to Michael's Art Supply and get like whatever green stuff they can find and then they shove it in the ground and call it a garden. Like we've complained about that on the blog before. We actually wrote a, you wrote a, a great blog post about the plants in Maze Runner. Oh God, those were awful. <laughs> they or, were eating ivy, wedding ivy, I think. Right. People actually should know that that in we're in Los Angeles here and there are actually, there's two very large companies that provide all of the plants to Hollywood movies here. They actually provide both living plants and plastic plants, and you can go to these places. I, I've, I've never been. I met someone who actually worked at one of these places, and you can go there and pick out prop plants, and they have they have everything. Uh, it's it's actually pretty amazing. Tomato plants, et cetera, et cetera. But it does look like they actually did pick out potato plants or made them somehow well mm-hmm. of course ridley scott is is a detail he is known for he's really an art director more than he is a mm-hmm. film director but that's a that was not a nice thing to say mm-hmm. i guess but it, it really was when you watch a ridley scott film though you know it's going to look good that's always reassuring for me 
he gets the details in the background, right? But more to the point here, uh, apparently after Andy Weir wrote the novel, they discovered perchlorates in the soil of Mars, which is a toxic salt, a very toxic salt for both uh, toxic to both humans and plants. So there perchlorates in a laundry detergent. I think they're in um they're an oxidizer. Yeah, that's probably that that's correct. They're an ox I'm not sure it's the same kind of perchlorate that was found on the Martian uh. surface. They're used in rocket fuel too, I mm. believe. Anyways, uh, apparently uh, some people think you could wash the perchlorates out of the soil. So the the film is missing a tedious and uninteresting step, I suppose, where you would see him washing the soil, the perchlorates out of the soil. So that, a minor detail, uh, but a bigger detail for me is is this. Of course, the Martian soil is completely void of of life and will not support um, plants because plants need microbes and things like that in the soil. And so, to compensate for that, he raids the toilet on the space station. Now, I had to look this up, but it actually that part of the movie is very accurate. Apparently, somehow, uh, space poo gets vacuum sealed into little little mylar type bags. Looks like, which, it looks like it's kind of funny because they eat food out of shrink wrap right. mylar bags, and then their poo ends up in the same form. So it's shrink wrapped, and it looks like it's dehydrated because it's, it's yes, it you is. Know, and dehydrated and like sealed in foil packets, and then it was all in a pile in a bin. And you see him emptying the packets, and then it seems like he mixes them with water. I won't get in. He has a way of making water in the movie, which apparently is is plausible as well. He mixes the poo with some water, and then he directly applies it to the soil. Which that's a that's a that's a part that I had an issue with. Historic. I think there's a misunderstanding about the history of of using human feces in agriculture, which is the thought that it was applied directly. And that, from the research I've been able to do, is, is not the case, that, that you actually have to compost. There's, there's, there's actually two reasons to compost human waste when you're, when you're using it for agriculture. One is the issue of pathogens, because compost will, will deal with that. But also, uh, pure, fresh poo is too nitrogen it, it'll burn plants basically so the old night soil man in both you know in japan in china in in europe they would let that poo sit before they would apply it to the soil they would compost it in some way or another before it was applied to the soil so i think there might be a problem with his technique. Now, if, if someone thinks I'm wrong about that, I'm open to correction. But there has been uh, writing lately about how in in developing countries, they've been turning where both fertilizer is expensive uh, and water is expensive. They've been turning to using uh, sewage water, uh, you know, untreated wastewater as crop fertilizers. That's going on right now. But maybe that's working pathogens aside it's it's working from a nitrogen standpoint because it's diluted yeah i think maybe because it's diluted now it should be pointed out that some 50 percent of the biosolids in this country end up on agricultural land here in in los angeles the 
the biosolids from the large uh, sewage treatment plant here are taken to Kern County to a farm, believe it or not, called Green Acres. Someone has a sense of humor at the city, although the Kern County, they're not so happy about this. They've, they've sued to, to prevent this um, program over the past few years, but it is currently operating, and what they do is they spread the biosolids on a, a large farm, again called Green Acres, and then they use it to grow fodder for dairy cattle. So this is done. This is this is done in the West. It, it's, uh, it historically was done in many different parts of the world. But again, in, in the movie, I think there's a missing step where he composts it. And so you think he would have burnt his little plants? I, think, I don't think it would have worked. I think it needed to be composted first, and maybe they just maybe that's in the novel and it was cut. I don't I don't know. I but. mean, and then I was saying that maybe there was uh, there was science magic that happened that we don't know about because you know you see there's a scene where he's dumping the packets into the bucket and adding water, but maybe he added enzymes or something else to neutralize the ammonia. You know, who knows? Maybe you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna give Matt Damon some slack because he did his work at a big box store. Mm. That's the first part of the movie for people who haven't seen it yet. <laughs> Just kidding. All right. And then moving on to another detail, which is uh, sometimes we, we blog about homemade furniture on uh, Root Simple. And I was struck by the uh, incredible mid-century modern furniture in the NASA headquarters in this, this film. Oh, NASA was looking fine in this, in this film. What a beautiful place. So I did a little research on this because I actually remember seeing a there was a beautiful book called Cosmos, a Portrait of the Russian Space Age by a photographer named Adam Barstrom that came out, I don't know, maybe 10, 15 years ago now. It showed the offices and the places where the the Soviets built stuff. And they, they actually Back had, in the golden age yeah, of space. They had quite the stylish uh, uh, digs. So I was curious to see what NASA's headquarters actually looks like. Did it look anything like the movie? And in fact, it it it's the typical bland office. It looked like um, you know the contents of the lobby of a a very bland hotel had been barfed up into a cubicle hell. Is the way I would put it. <laughs> and that's what NASA's headquarters actually looks like. Well, no set designer wants to deal with the reality of the tyranny. Of the drop ceiling, the fluorescent, the fluorescent panel, lights, right. and the cubicle, which is where like 90% of things happen in that environment. And it is a hellish environment, and it is an ugly environment, yet that's where we do our work. And that's what NASA looks like, uh, and that's what police stations look like, and that's what courtrooms look like. And <laughs> yet when you watch TV or a movie, you would never know. The courtrooms are beautiful. They're not the horrid boxes that we actually do our jury duty in. The police precincts have all this natural light and, I don't know, nourish uh, window blinds or whatever. Labs, like labs are amazing places. Um, but everything is actually under a fluorescent panel and a drop ceiling. Except... Oh, I like to point out in Lars von Trier's horror hospital series called The Kingdom, if you'll remember that, there was a lot of fluorescent lit corridors and mm. actual, it looked like real hospital settings, which kind of amplified mm. the horror of that very strange supernatural series. In The Matrix, he was working in a cubicle. You remember that? 
Yeah, except that it, that movie had the more dramatic lighting, I think. Well, rather I than think... the sort of bland fluorescent hell that were actually uh, a real office the one scene with the cubicle chase i don't know it looked like a real i think it was kind of like a real office perhaps we're a little off topic Hmm. here but i couldn't i couldn't help point (laughs) point out the uh, furniture in the background yeah well yeah so nasa looked great and of course all the people who work at nasa look great too what an attractive bunch of astronauts and administrators i gotta say yeah that they got sean bean working for them you know and sean bean i love sean bean Boromir. Was he the? Uh, oh, that's right. He was the. <laughs> but you know, he's Sean, he's getting old. It makes me sad. I'm getting old along with him, but um, still looking good. Uh, you know, yeah, every, lots of really good looking astronauts. Spoiler alert: He ends up becoming a a golf instructor in the movie, which I'm not making that up. But <laughs> long story. Now, uh, you had actually been working on a a long blog post. And I had been working on a blog post on the movie, but we decided we'd talk about it on the podcast instead. Yeah, because it's, yeah, who wants to, I don't know, people don't want to read two separate blog posts about this. And yeah, so. Do you, do you want to, because it, 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 the, the movie hits a, a button. Mm, of, it hits of, my button. Both of ours. Uh, it hits many a button. That is, um, well, it's kind of the third rail of our culture right, right now to bring up this topic, but the, uh, the myth of progress. Mm. And uh, you had um, something to say about that. I thought you might just want to read the blog post that you had written or the excerpt from it that you yeah, had Yeah, it's written. a little rough still, but yeah, I think it might be more organized instead of me umming and awing my way through my thoughts. It's just to read what I've already written and we can talk about it. My favorite moment in the film is when he notices that his first potato plant has sprouted. He looks through the plastic sheeting into his little greenhouse and he sees a tiny sprout coming up through his questionable soil Uh, and he goes up to it and he strokes the leaves and he says to it hello there and I thought that was a really important moment because it's in his extremity he acknowledges kinship with this plant it is the only other living thing on the entire planet with him and it's also an earthling think about it. He could have said many things when he first saw this potato sprout, including, thank God, I'm not going to starve, or I did it. I'm great. But instead, he says, hello. And that little sprout looks so vibrant and tender and sweet amidst all of that tech and plastic and in the face of the killing climate outside the door. Hello there. That's what he says again at the end of the film when he's back on earth And he sits on a bench in a park and looks down at a sprout in the ground. And that reminded me of the end of Gravity, too, where she comes home to Earth and she doesn't crash land in the desert or in the sea, but in some primordial pool with red clay banks and rich green things growing all around. And she's got red clay all over her bare feet. It's like she's been baptized again in the blood of the Earth. Now she's back where she belongs. We are creatures of this world, and we are kin to all living things on this world, including plants. They are our older kin. They've seen a lot more than we have. And the more I learn about plants, the more I respect them, and the more mysterious they become. I think we have a lot to learn about plants and a whole lot to learn from them. But it's hard for us to believe that. And I think some of the most interesting science out there right now is about plants. 
and about it's in the science which is poking at the previously forbidden notions like plant behavior, plant motivation, and even plant consciousness. Because we want to believe we are the only really important player on this planet. And we want to believe also that we don't really need this planet. And we don't need nature at all, despite all evidence to the contrary. Long ago, the Western ego split away from nature. And I think this is what the Genesis stories are about. The development of our Western civilization and Western psyche came out of that split. And if we say we're not part of nature, that there's nature and then there's us, you know, we visit nature. Uh, we uh, have literary themes like man against nature. So there's nature and there's us, right? That is so funny. It's like an ant colony saying, we're ant world down here and everything else is nature. We built ant world and no one else is allowed to live here except for a few useful symbiotes. So it's not nature. This is patently ridiculous, but it's a very useful mental trick because if we believe that we are separate from nature, we can examine it from the outside and take it apart, discover her secrets as it were, in a Baconian way. And this allows us to do extraordinary things. And it accounts for the short, incandescent trajectory of Western culture, especially the last 200 years or so of our progress. And it's also a system out of balance and a system that may ultimately be suicidal. But of course, this movie doesn't think that. This movie is all rah-rah science. And don't get me wrong, science is fantastic, but it arises out of the split and it takes us to the arid realms of anti-connection. It takes us to Mars, to the barren places of the intellect, to the emotionless world of machine logic. And we are not machines. And sometimes we need to go to these places, but sometimes we need to go to other places. I'm not anti-science, but I don't think it's all we need. Most of all, it can't solve all our problems. At the end of the film, when he's back on Earth and prepping young astronauts to go back out there, he says something about how when you're out in space and things go wrong, you have to solve problems. And if you solve each problem correctly, you live. And if you don't, you die. And that's a good example of the science will solve all fallacy. Because you know, sometimes you just die. Sometimes you can't clever your way out of a situation. Sometimes the problem has no solution. And you don't die because you've failed or because you're not clever enough, because you're not bold enough, because you're not determined enough. Sometimes you just die. It's not the worst thing you could do. When I left the movie theater and I walked down the sidewalk, I was touching the plants growing along the walkway, as I often do when I'm walking around. It's, it's comforting to me for some reason. Do any of you do this? Do you say hello there to the plants around you, to the tree in your front yard? to the houseplant on your table. I suspect many of you do. And I think we should do this more, more often and more consciously. I think the plants are waiting for us to wise up. Very nice, Kelly. Um, it reminded me of, of two things. I, I think there's two things I wanna respond to in, in what you said. And that is that narrative of the, the myth of progress. And it's sort of a, um, it's a secular religion that somehow we're going to go out into space and colonize other planets when I, I really think that's that's impossible. 
Uh, there was actually a survey of, of um, scientists recently, and, and most of them also would agree with that, that, that we are on this earth and we have to learn to take care of our home. And I think there's a danger in thinking that we're going to be able to go to Mars and colonize it, which the movie, this movie sort of ends with that implication that, that he we're, gets back and that he's teaching the next generation. Yeah, we're not gonna going to stop go. trying. And it reminds me of suburban flight <laughs> in the 50s. Like we're going to, the city is screwed up, so we're going to move out to the suburbs. And it's, it's sort of a manifestation of that. That's a very unpopular thing to say. So, <laughs> And I mean, and to, you know, I mean, for, from my point of view, to be clear, I, I, I admire NASA. And I think right. that if we can do, you know, set up a, a colony, if we can do that, fantastic. Well, you know, but not, but wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> but, but as long as it's not done with the expectation that we're doing it so we can burn our bridges with the planet, you know, like for just for knowledge, a few people going out, well, seeing what's out that, there, that's, that's okay. What... But it's not, just as long as it's not grounded in a philosophy that we're doing it so that we can use the earth like a piece of tissue and throw it away and move on to the next box of tissue. That's what unmanned probes are for. That's the point I wanted to make that um, I'm all for unmanned probes of space and exploring space, and it gets great. But sending people there is is extraordinarily difficult and expensive, and really not worth it in the end. Uh, and again, this delusion that that we're going to colonize space is—I think just that—it's it's a delusion. And it reminded me of a far. Well, you mentioned Gravity, which is I think a better movie because she ends up in that at the end of that movie, as you said, grounded. But it also reminded it me... It ends with her grounded, too. Right. It ends with her grounded. It reminded me of uh, Tarkovsky's movie Solaris, which is a, a real masterpiece. Uh, not an easy film to watch. Like any of Tarkovsky's movies, extremely slow moving. You, you need a lot of caffeine and caffeine someone to pinch you once in a while. Andre Tarkovsky, actually, <laughs> the full name. If you, if you haven't seen his films, you really should. Now, and, th- and don't mix it up with the second Solaris. Yeah, don't mix it oh, up with Lord. the remake. Yeah, no. they remade Solaris, which was a really bad Not idea. The, remake. Uh, the first you, Solaris. You remake that movie. The first Solaris, you remember, opens with that shot of the of the water plants are sort of waving mm-hmm. in the water. And then there's a scene where the, the protagonist who's a, a cosmonaut has to go to, to be launched and he goes into this horrible city and there's just a shot of the Well, before back. that he's out in the country, right? He's out in the so country, So he's in exactly. the beautiful country and exactly. he's like in his, what is it? His like country place or whatever I think it's, it's his Mikhail. father's house, yeah. right? And, uh, and that's that Russian the Russian idea of the the sacredness of the earth and of the mother mother earth is a very you know very Russian idea in, in, in especially in Tarkovsky expresses that in in a number of his movies but but also in Solaris but um, so he drives from he drives the country and to the city. I always think of that that scene where you just see the back of his head in a car, and this is how great a director Tarkovsky is that he can say more with the back of someone's head than most film directors can say with, you know, many scenes of people talking. But you see him go through this horrible landscape, and the implication is that he's being disconnected from reality. And in fact, that whole movie is this progressive disconnection with with sanity, with reality. Toward the, and remember the end of it, mm. you, he doesn't know what's real and what's not real. It's a very profound movie. It's with, like we understand like, our, our sanity is based in the earth and 
that's part of it. I and think, when we're when we're right. untethered from the earth, we lose we lose our our, our connection to our reality. Grounding. And so yep. then the the people on the space station are are experiencing they're having ex- they're having experiences, hallucinations, visitations, and they they can't tell what's real uh, and what's anymore not. and what's not. And actually, that movie. Another thing about that movie is he has more personal relationships with other people too. I, th- I thought you know in, in Solaris, where mm-hmm. it's just the Matt Damon character is again this sort of individualist who's out on his own. But in Solaris, you see the character's connection with his past, with his through parents his hallucinations and his, and his, his wife and, or his ex-wife, right? Mm-hmm. And through those hallucinations, anyways. So uh, you you haven't seen that movie? It's it's a real. Uh, uh, amazing, amazing film. And the other thing I wanted to to, to mention is you, you talking about we we joked about how you know you know you know when we I I said well we're going to spoil the movie for people but reality is when you step into a Hollywood movie when I stepped into this movie I knew that he would survive at the I end. Mean, yeah, it's, it's it goes without saying. It's a little bit going to a Hollywood movie is a little bit like reading a romance novel. Yeah, you just know. It's all going to be okay. It's so formulaic, you know, because there's well, there's a there's actually almost like a contract with the viewer. Like, I'm not going to bum you out. You know, this is all going to come out okay. It's going to be a thrill ride. You know, you're going to wonder how is he going to get out of this. You know, you know, but in the end, it's going to be you're going to walk out relaxed. So you can relax into the artificial experience, like the artificial emotional roller coaster that you're paying your money to get aboard. But this wasn't always the case. We joke about the 70s. Yeah, we're old where... enough that we remember. Like, you know, it's kind of funny to be a kid in the 70s when everything was really dark and um, ambiguous. Like, everything you watched was ambiguous. And the songs the were all depressing, you know, like The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald and, and that one about the horses burning in the stable. What was that? Wildfire? <laughs> and, 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 yeah, everything was was... You, you watched a movie, you didn't know what was going to happen. And and certainly, if this was the 70s, Matt Damon would die. Well, and this this movie reminded me of a space version of All is Lost, which is the uh, Robert, Robert Redford. Redford in a Boat movie. It's what we call it, the Robert Redford in the Boat movie, which we watched fairly recently. And it did remind me a lot of that because the ocean is a hostile environment like space. And and Robert Redford's trying to MacGyver his way through a bunch of problems. Basically, it's the same To get movie. home. It is the same. It's very similar. Um Although, you know, what's kind of nice about Robert Redford movie is that he doesn't talk. Uh, and actually, the it's a slightly more complex movie because he's a little more incompetent, too. And yeah. you see him trying to figure yeah, things Matt out. Yeah, Matt Damon's just like, you know, Mr. Clever. Yeah, he just gets every... Well, he he, almost, there's a few setbacks, his, but, but his setbacks aren't really his fault. Right, right. Really, his setbacks are just because he's in a very precarious place. But it, it reminded me of a, a really great book that I read uh, maybe quite a while ago now uh, by Stephanie – I think her name is Barteski. At any rate, the book was called Antarctic Destinies, Scott Shackleton and the Changing Face of Heroism. And what what it was about was it contrasted the Antarctic missions of Robert Falcon Scott, who died on the way back from the South Pole, and Ernest Shackleton. Now – in Robert Scott's time, he was a hero, and he was a hero because he faced death bravely, and he didn't make it back. And that was that was part of of the the lesson that you you know we none of us get out of this alive. And so it's about how you face your death, exactly. And but these days, you know, because history, 
is always really about the present, right? So there was uh, actually just leading up to the um, economic meltdown in 2008, there were just a ton of Ernest Shackleton books because he was kind of held up as this this sort of, you know, executive hero, like a, like an entrepreneur who just sort of figures things out and saves everyone and everyone wins in the end. It's a lot like this movie, like All is Lost movie too. The Marsh, the Martian and All is Lost both have this quality of the guy makes it in the end because he figures things he's, out. He's a clever guy. Whereas Robert Falcon Scott, you know, a brave man who didn't make it. And, you know, it, it says more about ourselves that we we just value this 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 lone individualist because, you know, Scott was more of a team player. His whole team died. Yeah, exactly. So I, I just I don't know. I if if I have this message to Hollywood is please, you know, can we have a little more ambiguity? Maybe that's too much to ask, I guess, that, that we would have a movie where we don't know what's going to happen and where not everyone always makes it, where it's a little more realistic. And I think that's a lesson for do-it-yourself stuff, too. I mean, it can be a little silly here, but not all our gardening projects work out in the end, right? And it's more about how we face the challenges of things than it is about winning and the always winning yeah right of yeah, success definitely. this cult of success which is just horrible yeah you're right so kelly you think that's um good summary of the movie i think so i also think that we're um, running out of time here in our hot box so that's right we got to get the air conditioning yes. back on thank you global warming we have to get our air conditioning unit back on get back into our spacesuits to survive another day here on arrakis and uh, we'll have a, we have a set of guests we're working on for the Root Simple podcast coming up. And more about that soon. So stay tuned if you can say that to a podcast. At <laughs> any rate, uh, to thank leave a question. Thank you for listening. Yes, thank you for listening. That's what we'll say. And we say that at the end, though. Oh, we'll to, say it twice. We'll say it twice. Because twice is nice. Uh, to leave a question for the Root Simple podcast, please call us at area code 213-537-2591. Or send us an email at rootsimple at gmail.com. We are Root Simple on Twitter. If you like the podcast, please tell someone about it in an email or via social media. That means put it up on your Facebook page. We're also on Stitcher. And you can support the Root Simple podcast by buying a copy of one of our books through the Amazon links on our website. Our theme music is by Dr. Frankenstein. Thank you for listening. Thank mm-hmm. you.